Um, just before Christmas, uh, Joe and I sat down to watch another super film. We've watched a lot, I assure you, during lockdown. It was a super fun retelling of Dickens's great and famous story called David Copperfield. Here's a picture on the screen. Um, it was a fun retelling, a reimagining of some sections of it, of the story of David Copperfield that's set in Victorian London. It was such a super cast, the great and the good of English theatre and cinema were put together in this great modern retelling of the story. Dev Patel is the main character, but what I want to draw your attention to is another character who is central to the story. It's Uriah Heep. Uriah Heep is brilliantly portrayed by Ben Whitshaw. At a time when status was something you were born into, class structures were really rigid and impenetrable, Uriah Heep has a deep and powerful longing to do whatever it takes to move from being a nobody to being a somebody, from being ignored to being noticed. He has a hunger for approval, a hunger for acceptance. So he wants a good verdict from society. And it's a great illustration of someone's struggle because they are hungry for glory. They're hungry for glory. We all want this in every society, in every stage, in every century. We want to be noticed. We have a glory hunger in our hearts. We want to be approved of, we want to be validated, we want others to think well of us, we want to be known, and we certainly want to be accepted and valued. In our modern society, I think it's morphed into something called self-esteem. How much our self-worth and our personal value is linked to how we feel about ourselves, but especially what other people say about us. You look fantastic. No one's ever said that to me. Um, or you've worked hard enough, or you're a great parent, or you've uh, raised your family so well, or you're doing brilliantly at school or at university. Or I just love what you bring to our relationship. We want to be validated. We want to be accepted and valued. And we want to be approved of at the end of a hard year or a hard week or a hard month. But where does this hunger come from? If there is a, a hunger that is global, if there is a hunger that is found in every society and in every tribe and in every culture, that means it must have come from the beginning. And the Bible says that's exactly where it originated. This hunger, this glory hunger, this need for self-esteem, this need to be validated, it comes from the very beginning of the Bible, actually. In Genesis chapter 1, 2 and 3, it tells us about it. In the beginning, we were absolutely certain of God's approval. We lived naked and yet we were unashamed. And what does that mean? Before God, who knows us, who made us, it means we didn't need to spin the truth. We didn't need to hide and be ashamed of anything. We had a perfect, intimate relationship with the maker of the universe. We didn't need to fight for control. We didn't need to long for status. It was given to us by a perfect relationship with the God who loves us. Didn't need to hide who we really are when we had a bad hair day. We were certain of God's approval. Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2. We're certain of God's approval and therefore we didn't need it from anybody else. But then Genesis chapter 3 says, although we lived life large and free and enjoyed a relationship with the one who made us, by the time we get to Genesis chapter 3, we lost that certainty when we chose to turn our back on God's loving rule 
And that means we need to find approval from someone else. When we're alienated from God, we look for longing or we long for acceptance and approval and validation from someone or something else. We began to experience shame along with separation. Anxiety and fear entered into the world. We started to need approval from someone else. We were trying to work out self-esteem where our first parents were, and we long for knowing our identity. But it's a longing outside of God that will never, ever be satisfied. It's the problem of glory hunger. It's a problem of righteousness. Righteousness in the Bible is what it means to have a correct record, to be approved, to be accepted, to pass a scrutiny where God is looking in on our hearts and it's a problem that every single person has. It's a huge problem and that we're all dealing with in our own ways. That's what Matthew 23 is about. In Matthew 23, Jesus speaks very firmly, harshly to the religious leaders and the scribes of the day. And in so doing, it can be very confusing, but I want to look at the first 12 verses in detail because Jesus is speaking to the crowd, verse one, and says, I want to warn you about the Pharisees and the scribe. I want to warn you about the teachers of the law. I want to warn you about the glory problem. I want to warn you about the approval and the self-esteem problem. Will you get it now or will you wait and receive it then? There are two ways to solve the glory hunger. There's two ways to solve the righteousness problem. One is outside in, one is inside out. One won't work, which is outside in. One does, which is inside out. The Pharisees are operating on an outside in way of righteousness. Jesus in the gospel shows us that inside out is the only way for us to feed our glory hunger and for him to deal with our righteousness issue. Let's look at the first one, outside in. The wrong way to feed and find our righteousness. Outside in. And just to put it in its context, Matthew has designed his gospel with five key teaching sections. Let's just run through them. This is the last of the five main teaching blocks. But here's the first. In, in Matthew chapter 5 to 7, we have the very famous Sermon on the Mount. From the lips of Jesus, it's Jesus's mandate for a new community where he dwells at the centre. And in chapter 10, Jesus is now describing and commissioning his disciples to go out on the kingdom building project. In chapter 13, central to the whole book, you've got the parables of the kingdom of God. Jesus teaching again and again of what it means to be part of his new kingdom where his loving rule and reign is seen on into the future. In chapter 18, Jesus is describing what it means to live as part of this community. And now we reach the final main teaching block, chapter 23 to 25 that balances the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is talking about the future. He's warning the religious leaders and he's describing the danger that they're in. And almost everything he says is future focus. As he deals with the issue of righteousness or enoughness would be another way to put that word. Look at verse three of Matthew chapter 23. The Pharisees, they were the conservative religious leaders of the day. We, we met them once again last week in Matthew chapter 22, but they, verse 3 of Matthew chapter 23, they are renowned not just for their standing, but for their hypocrisy. Notice that from verse 3. 
they are renowned, they're famous for all the wrong things, for not practicing what they preach. They talk the talk, but they didn't walk the walk, is a modern way of saying that sentence. And so their instructions, verse 4, they're just like weighty burdens that crush other people. They're not living what they are proclaiming and preaching and teaching. The Pharisees, they, they saw sin as externals. They saw sin as behavior. They saw sin as someone who doesn't keep the rules, someone who steps on the grass rather than staying off it. And they functioned in relation to the Lord, just like that lawyer that we met last week from Matthew chapter 22, verse 34. Jesus, if we just know the key, if you just tell us the executive summary, if you just tell us where the grass is and so we don't tread on it, then we believe that we can keep all your laws and we will be acceptable to you through our own effort. It's what we do that will save us. That's what the Pharisees believe. Just give us a summary. Tell us something that we can achieve. Tell us something that is attainable so that we can make ourselves right with you through what we do. It's about obedience for the Pharisees. And they were absolute experts, the Pharisees, of taking a cultural preferences, cultural norms, and turning them into laws. Turning them into laws that they would keep. And if they kept them, then they could look down on other people who didn't. So it would make them feel good about themselves and deal with their glory hunger. That's really how they functioned. And that's why, as we read in Matthew chapter 23, verse 5, they were so concerned with how they looked on the outside. What a wonderful word for Scrabble is found in this verse. The Pharisees, verse 5 of Matthew chapter 23, they wore wide phylacteries. I had to look that word up. Phylacteries. It's a little leather box that you can see on the screen that someone who's a Jewish person would wear a leather box with a scripture inside it called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. That little scripture on a little bit of parchment would be written and put in a leather box on their forehead and also on their left arm. So it'd be close to their heart. And that's a, a practice of obedience from the Old Testament that's still kept by many um, Jewish people today. But what an irony when God's word is pinned to their forehead and close to their heart on their left arm where they are so concerned with keeping the Ten Commandments, they want to honour God and honour his word, but it's all for show, says Jesus. They want to see, not just that they've got the normal shaped little leather box with the normal size scripture, they've enlarged it. They've gone to the max. They've ordered the mega meal, you could say, to say, look at us. Look how great we are at keeping God's word. The focus goes from God to them. And it's not just in the little phylactery. Notice verse five again, they have long tassels at the bottom of their garments, at the bottom of their clothes. Now, once again, this is from the Old Testament. And people would have long tassels if they were Jewish on the end of their clothes so that whenever they looked even at their kneecaps, they could see and remember in a pictorial way what God has done in the Old Testament. It's, it's kept at the forefront of their minds so they would they would remember God's word through the phylactery and they would remember God's deeds through the tassels. But everything that was supposed to be God-centred has become man-centred. They were meant to think about God through these items, but actually they used them to cause other people to think about themselves. What an irony. That's not all. Look at verse 6. Not just about externals of what they do in religious practice. Also, 
They love to have prominence. Look at verse 6. They loved the places of honour. They loved the places of honour. When you went into a synagogue, there would be separate places for people to sit. So as you walked in the main aisle, the, uh, the mums and the children, the women and the children would be sat at the back. And as you walked closer to the front of the synagogue, you would then be um, beside you would be men on either side. And at the front in the seats of best honour facing the people would be the Pharisees. It was designed for show. It was designed for prominence. It was designed so that people could see who were the most important people. And the Pharisees absolutely loved taking the place of honour in the synagogue, but also at feasts. And Jesus is looking at them and saying, beware, beware, beware of everything that they are doing for themselves. They think they're honouring me, but they're far from me. Verse 7. They love to be greeted in the marketplace and men called them rabbi, O oh, teacher. It's uh, not just prominence for, through what they say and do, but through what they taught. And it's about their reputation growing and God's reputation diminishing. They even went so far, I learned this week, to say, you're, you need to listen to us more than your parents. When your parents can give you life, they can give you food. But we can give you eternal life if you listen to what we say. That was the claim of the Pharisees who love to draw attention to themselves. And so to summarise, look back at verse 3. They wanted to increase their fame, their renown, their status through what they taught. Verse 3. Verse 6, whether they were at the banquet or the synagogue, they wanted to be number one. So that verse 12 teaches us in summary Whatever the setting, they longed and they would look to exalt themselves, to promote themselves. This was their agenda. It was not God's honour that they were living for. They were living for themselves. So it's self-promotion, it's self-exaltation, it's self-glory rather than God's glory. And verse 2 tells us these words as a warning, as smelling salts. It is written to describe the practice of the religious leaders, but there's plenty of application that we can listen to for our own hearts as well. If you and I, if, we are, if our hearts are not filled with the deep sense of approval in our hearts, if we are not utterly sure of who we are in Jesus, or to put it another way, if you don't feel so incredibly valued and loved, if you're not saturated with a sense of approval that comes from God, you will be behaving just like the Pharisees do. Whether you're a religious person or whether you'd say you're not a religious person, perhaps you're a spiritual person, perhaps you're someone who's just looking at Christianity to see what it has to offer. If you're a Christian, you need to accept that you're loved and approved and adopted by God in Jesus. But if you're not, you will be functioning in just the same way as the Pharisees. And even as Christians, we can still believe the lie that we can gain approval and acceptance from other people more than we can in Jesus. We can take uh, cultural preferences. We can take things that we enjoy, that we value, and we can make them into rules by which we always keep the rules that we make. And then we can look down at other people if they break our rules. We take something of moral significance and we make it an ultimate thing. Here's an example. Think about the Christian church. 
Christian church has had a lot of different pressures to deal with, with getting online and whether to meet in person or not, or not yet in the last year. But as the church is able to meet more regularly in the coming weeks and months we trust, there's a great temptation for Christians to look down on other Christians who are different from them. So think about the church and think about the topic of worship. We take something that is a preference and we make it an ultimate thing. We make it something by which we can look down on other people. What do I mean? Think about worship styles. There can be a church that where people love to raise their hands in full expression and using their whole body to praise God who they love and adore. There can be another church whose preference is not to do that, but to take notes and is more somber, perhaps, more cerebral, more uh, thought-centred uh, rather than emotional and thought-centred. And it's very easy for either one of those two tribes to look down on the other because their definition of worship or speed of music or bodily expression is better or more biblical than the one down the road. And both tribes are equally bad at looking down on each other. When that happens, you take a preference of which the Bible says nothing about the speed of singing or whether your hand should be raised or not. It's purely personal preference and adoring God from a whole heart. And we make it something we can look down on other people and measure them against our standard rather than the standard of the Bible. It's a, a way of operating on the outside-in approach of judging people and looking down on them. In other words, I and you can be just like the Pharisees. But Jesus is saying they operate on externals and they elevate preferences to God's standard. It's not just worship, it can be just looking down your nose at someone who's different from you. There's a cultural preference that you make into a main thing and when you meet someone who doesn't hold that same value then you can divide and separate, you can look down on them, you can be superior rather than humble, you can exalt yourself and push them down. I'm going to live in a certain way, you say, and then it will make me feel better about myself. Every single thing we can do, if done wrongly, if done without God at the centre, can be to fill our glory hunger, can be to fill our righteousness need. And Jesus, in the rest of the chapter, when he really does go to town and focus on them, beginning in verse 13, is saying the grave danger the warning, the woes, the seven woes, here are just five, that Jesus speaks to the Pharisees in the rest of the chapter. Verse 13, you operate in a completely uh, external way so that verse 13, because you don't know me, because you're operating on an outside-in approach, you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You do not know me, you deny my power, so you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Verse 23, Verse 23, you're hypocrites, you religious teachers, says Jesus. You're like blind guides. You don't know the truth. You're blind to the truth of the gospel. And therefore, you're leading other people down a dangerous path. Verse 25, you're more concerned with your outward appearance. But on the inside, your hearts are like unclean cups coming out of the dishwasher or from the sink. Verse 27, this is the worst of all. You think you're alive, but Jesus says to the Pharisees, you're dead. When you live like this as a Pharisee, a religious leader, or as a religious person in the 21st century, you are in danger of avoiding God by your own goodness. You think you can save yourself by your own 
religious reputation and knowledge. And Jesus says then what he says now, it is deadly. It's deadly for the present and it's deadly for the future. You'll be spiritually dead if you follow this way of outside in, thinking you can make yourself clean enough and good enough for God by your own efforts. Trying to fill your hunger for glory by taking God out of the picture is deadly. So let me ask you this morning, how are you dealing with this hunger? How are you dealing with this need for righteousness, for acceptance, for approval, for belonging, for love? Where are you finding that from? Outside of Jesus, it will always perish. It will always fray like a garment and it will never satisfy. Outside in is not the way to knowing a deep sense of approval and longing acceptance. So what is? Jesus said it's the very opposite. It's not outside in. It's not you trying to make yourself good enough for me. I need to work on the inside of your heart. It's inside out. That's the way of the gospel, says Jesus. Not outside in. That's Phariseeism. That's religious uh, approval. It's inside out. That's the way the gospel says for acceptance and approval. Let's think about that for the remainder of our time, inside out. Luke 18, in Luke 18, there's a famous story, a parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, two people who go up to the temple to pray. The Pharisee, just like from our passage, loves to speak about himself. He loves to pray about himself. He loves to look down on other people. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other people. This is what I do, says the Pharisee. And he stands away from other people because he's superior. But then in comes the tax collector, someone who's morally dubious or at least repugnant of the day. And the tax collector, not the Pharisee, the unreligious, not the religious, is a model of this new way of gospel understanding by which we receive our righteousness from God rather than us trying to make our own righteousness towards God. This is what the... Uh, the tax collector can teach us. Verse 13 of chapter 18 of Luke's gospel. The tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. And he beat on his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. God, have mercy on me, the sinner. Here's how you finally solve the problem of righteousness. Two ways. There has to be a whole new way to understand repentance, a whole new way to say sorry to God, to turn from self-reliance to God dependence. You have to see that you've always wanted to be your own savior. You've always wanted to put other people in your debt and not live in debt or gratitude towards another person. You have to see you've always lived in a way that you want to look down on other people from your point of obedience, from your high point, you want to look down on others so that you feel good about yourself. You have to see that you're hungry still for approval. You're still in need of assurance. And yet the tax collector comes and says, I'm going to put all of that down. And I and I alone will throw myself on your mercy. All my doings, all my efforts, all my externals, I throw them down. And the tax collector says, I am the sinner. And he throws himself on the mercy of Jesus. It's the first thing, it's a whole new way of thinking about repentance. Nothing that I can do to win your acceptance. I need to throw myself on your mercy. Here's the second thing. There's a whole new way of finding approval. The tax collector says, God, be merciful to me, 
the sinner. When he uses that word merciful in the original language, which is Greek, the tax collector is literally using a word that means, God, I need you to atone for my sin. Here's the long word. It's the word hilasterion, hilasterion. God, I need you to atone for my sin. I can't do it. I can't make myself right. I throw myself on your mercy and I need you to atone for my sin. Hilasterion. In the temple, in the Old Testament, there was the Holy of Holies. There was the, the private place that only the high priest could enter into once a year to offer sacrifice for sin. It's a place where God spoke to the high priest, where God accepted uh, the sacrificial offering from the high priest and God's glory dwelt in the Shekinah glory, the glory of God dwelt atop the Ark of the Covenant, which is where the law of God was kept. The Ten Commandments were kept inside the Ark of the Covenant. In other words, you couldn't come close to God without being scrutinised by the law of God, without being measure up, measured up against its standard and everyone fell short. No one could pass scrutiny from the law of God in order to see God. But over the top of the Ark of the Covenant, it was a thick slab of gold, and it was called the mercy seat, the hilasterion, same word. The mercy seat of God is the only way that a sinful person can be accepted before the God of all purity, all love and all holiness. Here's the tax collector using the very same word to say, I need to lay down all my good deeds and all my wrong deeds and I need you, God, to make a way of acceptance for me. I throw myself on your hilasterion. I throw myself on your mercy. I need you to atone for my sins and I don't know how you'll do it, but I need you to do it. Let me tell you that very same long word, hilasterion, is used in another part of the Bible. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. In Hebrews 2, 17, Jesus is described as the great high priest of God's people. He's the merciful and high priest who enters into the holy place, offering his very own lifeblood to cleanse a sin-struck people who will never find acceptance or approval outside of his own life. By his shed blood on the cross, King Jesus offers his life as propitiation to take away the right, measured, appropriate wrath of God against our rebellion and to pay for our sins once and for all. He offers his life as an atonement for his people. So this tax collector coming before God saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He's not saying, God, let me off. God, will you lower the standard because I can never meet it? God, just overlook my sins. Please give me a pass. I'm having a bad life. That doesn't help with the problem of righteousness. What he's saying is, Lord, I need atonement for my sins. And you and you alone can do that. As we journey towards Easter, friends, let's remember that only on the cross of Christ is our glory hunger dealt with, is the sin problem dealt with. Here's the only way that Christians can deal with the problem of approval. You need to reflect on the cross of Christ that teaches us this. First of all, Jesus loved you so much that he made atonement for you. 
That's the height, the width, the depth, the love of God shown in his son, that he was willing to make atonement for you. He was willing to pay the price for you. But here's the second part. First part, Jesus loved you so much that he made atonement for you. Here's the second part. He made such atonement for you that now he can love you. Our sin has been taken away from us and is placed on the shoulders of Jesus on the cross of Christ 2,000 years ago. All our unrighteousness is placed on him. All his righteousness is given to us as a free gift. What does this mean? It now means that Jesus can come in. Our sin has been removed from us and placed on him. Once Jesus died for us, paying the penalty for our sins, in spite of all the wrong things that I've done and that you have done, we are now accepted by God in his son, Jesus. We are utterly accepted. We are completely approved. Our past is forgiven. Our future is secure and certain. And in our present, we can live with God in our hearts by his Holy Spirit. You don't have to wait nervously at the end of your life thinking, did I live a good enough life? Did I do enough good? Jesus has lived the perfect life for you. Jesus is the propitiation. Jesus is the atonement that we need. He's the very thing that the tax collector was looking for. If you start to live from the inside out with a new heart that Jesus can give to you alone, it's going to change everything. It means you won't put yourself first all the time. It means you don't need to get approval from other people like the Pharisees did. And it means, verse 12 as we close, this sentence can be true for you and true for me too. Matthew 23, 12. This is the sign that you're living from the inside out rather than from the outside in. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. When you know the approval and the love, the satisfaction of God that deals with the hunger from glory, which means we can put ourselves second and put him and others first.